Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 1st of June 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Vesa, Vanessa Beely, apologies, Vanessa, and also Debbie Evans. Uh, well, we'll get straight on with Ukraine and the latest intelligence update, uh, paradox there or whatever, uh, from the defence intelligence. Uh, Russian ground operations remain tightly focused with the weight of firepower concentrated within a small sector of Luhansk Oblast over the 30th to 31st of May. Fighting intensified uh, with Russian forces pushing closer to the town centre. I'm not going to try and pronounce that, sorry. Severodonets. Uh, thank you. Uh, Beyond the Donbass, they said, however, Russia continues to conduct long-range missile strikes against infrastructure across Ukraine. The strategically important bridge links uh, Ukraine with Romania uh, and with Ukraine's ports on the Danube. Um, I'm not quite sure that, that sentence makes sense, but anyway, uh, that's what they wrote, uh, which have become critical to Ukrainian exports after the blockade of Ukrainian Black Sea ports. I'll be talking about uh, Ursula von der Leyen and the EU in a second and, and food security, but... Uh, Brian, I thought that was quite amusing that they were attempting to frame that in, in terms of exports from Ukraine and nothing to do with the imports of arms that are coming in the same channels. Well, this is spot on, Mike. And uh, the main bridge um, uh, that the uh, Russians have been after, I think they've had eight goes at it. And the last one, I think there was uh, the bridge is completely broken now. But of course, what are the Russians trying to do? They're trying to stop arms coming into Ukraine. It's not in the first instance about uh, taking military action to prevent food from coming out of Ukraine. Right. But this is the usual defence intelligence spin because, of course, the Russian forces haven't been pushing closer to the uh, town centre of Severodonetsk. They've been in the town centre and they've largely been there because the Ukrainian forces have largely withdrawn. So we're on this constant bias in how these organisations report. And uh, the UK Ministry of Defence is fully in there alongside the BBC, of course. So let's have a little look at, uh, these are a couple of video clips from a very seasoned BBC journalist, Quinton Somerville. Now credit to this man, he's put his, his own life at risk because he's been in some very dangerous spots out there in Ukraine. So we're certainly not uh, uh, playing down that aspect. He has got himself out very close to the front line. But let's have a, look, a little look at the style of his reporting. So this is the first of two clips. At the front, there's no bunker, but they're armed to the teeth. Yuri, this is a volunteer battalion. These men were doing ordinary jobs before the war, and they're facing against Russian tanks, Russian heavy artillery, indirect fire. How are they managing to hold the Russians off? Our men, they go, go in combat, they fight uh, every day uh, by this fire. You can watch it. Because we believe that all the democratic countries, all the world will help us. And when we um, we will take, we will give modern weapon. These brave men, they can destroy completely Russian army. And uh, we liberate all Ukraine and we liberate all the world of Russian gangster regime. As the day grows long, it's time to pick up the pace. On open ground, there's no safe hiding place. 
Pinned down, their route back is cut off by artillery fire. So, through gardens and backyards, they search for an escape. The soldier calls out, leave this place as soon as possible. And it's here we find Natasha. So that first clip, I think there's a number of very interesting things. He's pointing to small arms and seemingly suggesting that armed with small arms, the Ukrainian troops are going to be able to hold off the Russians. Um, but he's also showing that the Ukrainians are working to a dream of where they're going in the future. So the BBC is helping to support this uh, unrealistic expectation expectations by the Ukrainians that they're not only going to free Ukraine, they're going to free the world and they've got the full might of the BBC behind them. Right. And of course, what do we also see at the end of this clip? That they are operating, albeit in a rural urban area, but the Ukrainian troops are clearly hidden in amongst the urban area where there are still civilians. So the BBC's own, document, own documentary clip seems to show that, of course, the Russians are forced to shell urban areas because that's where the Ukrainian forces are hiding out. Right. Or am I missing something? No, right no, here? that's absolutely correct. So let's look at the second clip in where, where uh, Quinton Somerville goes into a bunker. Let's hear what's said in that bunker. War descended suddenly upon Ukraine. Along the eastern front, its men may be in bunkers, but they do not cower here. Three times in the last month, the Russians have attacked this base with infantry and tanks, and three times they've been repelled. Russian tanks strike on us directly from this position. Another attack may be imminent. Now we are waiting for them for correct fire. So here they wait. Vladimir Putin has turned their days into night and taken them away from their families. But for the men of this territorial defence unit, this is now home. Above their heads hangs a constant threat. The town they've dug under is all but abandoned. It's people gone. Orphan pets have sought shelter here too. The men know it won't be long before the next attack. The commander tells me they far outnumber us. But we are Ukrainians, and we are on our land. It doesn't matter how good the enemy are as soldiers. They don't have the support that we do from the people who live here. So what was described effectively as a bunker was in fact obviously um, underground of a building. So again, we're into the fact that the Ukrainian forces are entrenched in amongst urban areas and in the buildings making it impossible to get them out unless, of course, uh, they are going to be brought out by force, which then brings the BBC's accusations that the Russians are, are shelling buildings. Uh, but in that interview, it was freely admitted that many of the men there had no training whatsoever. But of course, what is the BBC doing? Encouraging them to believe that with no training and no weapons, they're going to survive against this present attacked by the Russians. So I think this is uh, appalling stuff by the BBC because ultimately they're prolonging 
they are prolonging the war and the suffering. And they had, of course, they had to get the clip with the little dog in there to make sure that the, the, they're family yeah, men. Exactly. They're all family men with their little dogs in the bunker. Um, well, let's have a look at the latest report from Mr. Somerville. It's here. I watch from afar Russia's latest merciless assault on Severodonetsk. And this is what he had to say. Uh, just days ago, I watched from a rooftop in Lizichansk because on the horizon, its twin city of Severodonetsk was being bombed indiscriminately. Shells were landing every minute on its length and breadth. Severodonetsk was burning. Lizichansk itself has been drained of life. A few people still go out on the streets, but they're mostly deserted. Artillery fires a regular threat. The air carried on the summer breeze is gritty with dust from smoke and pulverized buildings. So he's admitting there there's still people in the city, but of course the fighters are now in amongst them. Having failed to conquer all of Ukraine, Russian forces are now targeting Donbass, made up of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. If Severodonetsk and Lizichansk uh, fall, the whole of Luhansk would be occupied. Uh, well, here's the BBC coming out with a misleading statement because there's been no evidence whatsoever that the Russians ever plan to conquer the whole of Ukraine. But of course, this is driven into the BBC article. Uh, goes on, Vladimir, serving with a reconnaissance unit in the country's National Guard, tells me of his month in Rutbizny. It wasn't Mariupol, but it was pretty close. It was very hard. There were lots of losses, a lot of fighting across streets. There was also artillery just removing those houses very fast. People were trying to hide in the basement, so they had no view, no assessment of the current situation. So there were a lot of losses during that time. And so what we've got here is another admission that the Ukrainians are fighting from the urban areas amongst civilians. But of course, they're also admitting huge losses by the Ukrainian forces, the BBC not reporting any losses for the Ukrainians. The BBC simply tries to talk about what the, the Russian losses are. Uh, it goes on, gone along armoured columns and tank and infantry attacks seen in the first months in favour of large-scale artillery barrages, as many as 1,500 shells a day in Rubizny to wipe out resistance before any ground advance. There's a lot of artillery, says Vladimir. Bombardments are like a nightmare. We shoot one round, they shoot 10. When our sniper is shooting, they send in a full packet of grads. Those are rockets on his position. So it's basically a sniper with one bullet and they send us like $1,000 of artillery rounds. They really don't care how much ammunition they use. Now, this is remarkable because, of course, the BBC has been reporting for uh, days, weeks, months, that uh, the Russian army totally incompetent, disorganized and uh, unable to provide the logistics to support itself. Mm. This Ukrainian is telling us something different. And we'll carry on here. Vladimir Putin gambled big and lost on taking of all Ukraine. So perhaps that explains the enormous resources he's throwing at achieving a tactical win in Donbass. But a Kremlin victory here won't mean defeat for Ukraine. You're talking about areas altogether the size of England, but it's uh, BBC's trying to label it as a tactical operation. This is a major operation, but of course, we've got the lie again that uh, Putin was gambling on taking all of Ukraine. No evidence to support that. I asked the unmanned guards, uh, sorry, the unnamed guardsman, tired after months of battle, but still here at the front, what will it take to win? 
He tells me there is a sky and the sky is ours. Drones are helping a lot. Weapons have arrived and multiple rocket launches. America lend lease. The only question is time. It's time and that's it. And then everything will be Ukraine. So they're relying on these uh, multiple uh, rocket launchers coming. Of course, they're not being given by America. They're being passed over, as the man says quite correctly, on lend-lease. Mm. So Ukraine bankrupts it, but get the weapons in and charge for those weapons. But are those rockets going to uh, change the battle? I don't think so. If we just pop that up on the screen and we can put some comment in there. Uh, so we're now repeating this false and misleading, apologies for the spelling error there, uh, the idea that US lend-lease weapons will win the war. Well, where can we go from there? Um, let's uh, just say that uh, if you prolong the war, you're going to help uh, uh, produce more deaths. And this is the tragedy, the Western media helping to ramp up the deaths of the Ukrainians, because until there's some form of agreement uh, between Russia and Ukraine, the fighting will go on. Let's look at this little cartoon where somebody, uh, very astute in my opinion, took a few seconds to explain what the Ukraine-Russian war was really about. So we've, play, we've played a cartoon. We're not doing this out of any uh, disrespect for the people fighting in Ukraine, but ultimately a cartoon explains just how uh, Ukraine has been played. Of course, in the beginning, it's the Russians putting in the arms, and that's represented by the Kalashnikov, but thereafter it's NATO and the West playing Ukraine off against, uh, uh, off against Russia. So if we just bring our BBC reporter back on screen, uh, I think that uh, Quinton Somerville should watch that cartoon and think about his, his own reporting. But why is it that this man doesn't understand the true situation, Mike? Why, why would we say that a seasoned reporter can't grasp the war he's actually talking about? Well, maybe we could ask Vanessa that question, because the, the question in my mind, Vanessa, has always been, uh, do uh, BBC reporters believe the reports that they're telling us, or are they there with the intention and the knowing intention in themselves uh, that they're pushing out a particular narrative? Well, I mean, you know, I've said for a very long time that the BBC are effectively paid to uh, misinform, mislead, misinterpret and obscure the facts of every war. Quentin Somerville was embedded with Al-Qaeda in northwest Syria, um, in uh, Idlib, 
and was reporting on the destruction of hospitals by Russian and Syrian troops only, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, a couple of points on those reports. First of all, what uh, Somerville is also not mentioning is the deaths of children, women, um, and civilians in the last few days by the same forces that he was embedded with that have been launching uh, rockets into uh, the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, People's Republics. Also, the fact that this territory is not occupied by Russia. It is occupied by Ukrainians. It's occupied by the Ukrainian resistance in Donetsk and Luhansk, another point that he completely obfuscates in this report. Um, Vanessa, if I, can, if I can just come back on that, it's worse than that, because in the report at the end of, of the article that we've shown you on the screen, mm. uh, he, he freely admits that in that area, 30% of people support actively support the Russians, 30% support the Ukrainians, and the rest of the people don't care. They want a, a quiet life. So that, that gets dropped in by Mr. Somerville. Uh, but of course, there's no real comment on what those statistics mean. Well, I know they're completely uh, dishonest statistics, actually. Um, but he also doesn't mention the multiple surrenders that we've seen in the last few days of legitimate Ukrainian forces um, who have whole units have been surrendering to the Russian troops because they feel that they've been left high and dry by the Kiev leadership and by NATO member states. Um, and they've effectively, as you've shown in the cartoon, been left uh, to die. I mean, you know, this is this reporting by the BBC is is criminal because, as you say, it's sustaining the war as they've done through history. They have sustained all NATO member state interventions in foreign countries militarily or economically. And the BBC, in my view, is entirely responsible just as much as the British and American regimes for the deaths in Ukraine of both civilians and the legitimate military forces. And by that, I mean not the Azov and Nazi and ultra-nationalist uh, brigades. Yeah. yeah, thank okay. you. Yeah, thank you for that. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the EU and what they're up to. And uh, Ursula von der Leyen, well, let's have a look at what she says, first of all, uh, about energy security. Our answer has to be very clear. How are we going to manage to really uh, get rid of the dependency of Russian fossil fuels and here with view to gas? The answer is repower EU. It brings basically three different pillars um, that we have discussed today. The first one is the diversification away from Russian fossil fuels, specifically on gas. The second element we are working on in Repower EU is the security of supply through better interconnections. And then the third is the most important pillar, and this is the massive investment in renewables. So there you go, Brian. They're going to solve the problem of Russian gas and oil uh, imports in the EU by creating a new brand name, Repower EU. That's going to solve it. Uh, and they're going to double down on the green agenda. Uh, that's going to solve it as well. Well, she says that might, but clearly there is a rebellion inside the EU. You've got commercial companies who are signing up uh, with uh, the Russian ruble deal. And you've also got countries who are saying we don't agree with what Ursula is proposing. Well, so it's going to be interesting to watch. To watch indeed. But uh, what, what about the Russian side? Are they suffering at all from this situation? Well, perhaps not, because here's Bloomberg UK. Uh, more Russian oil than ever before is heading for China and India, up to 79 million barrels 
of the nation's oil on ships. Uh, Asia now the biggest buyer of Russian barrels amid Ukraine war. So Russia seems to be doing okay. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, then uh, Ursula, of course, went on. She moved on to uh, defense. Uh, and so let's have a listen to what she said there. The war again wasn't is a stark reminder um, for our member states on the need to strengthen our defense capacities. Leaders and the member states stepped up and announced by now 200 billion euros in extra military spending. Now it is important that we ensure that these stepping up and additional investment, we get the maximum value out of it. So by that Does she mean deaths. Well, she? yes, indeed. But uh, but you can see that more and more money going to the uh, defence companies. Uh, but of course, the EU uh, wanting to use this as a driver for their defence union. And uh, if you remember the video that we showed of Ursula last week, uh, was a reminder of what she'd said when she was still the defence minister for Germany back in 2018 at the Munich Security Conference, where she was talking about Africa, for example, not traditionally being an area. Uh, for NATO, but perhaps that's changing. So let's uh, bring uh, Ben Wallace uh, on screen. And he was in Spain uh, last week, uh, meeting uh, his Spanish counterpart there. And they were talking because uh, ahead of the NATO summit, which is going to take place in Spain uh, on the 29th and 30th of June, uh, they were talking about Russia and the threat to the East and Ukraine, of course. But they were also talking about Russia and the threat from Russia from the South, and that is Africa. Um, and so, uh, they uh, they then, Brian, would you believe, started talking about the, the allegation that Russia is mobilizing migrants from Africa to come into the EU as a weapon. They're weaponizing migrants was the narrative that came out of these two. Um, and so uh, uh, they're claiming that the, the Wagner group is uh, very clear, they said, is uh, creating terrorism in Mali and in Libya, uh, that NATO can't be indifferent in this situation. Uh, if Russia can use migrant flows as a weapon at one end of Europe, they can certainly use it in another. Uh, and NATO's strategic concept has to involve the whole of NATO, all the territory that, cover, that it covers through its partnership. And so now there are calls for NATO to start getting involved in Africa as well. And just before we move on from this, I just make the point that uh, then that was followed up. Ben's uh, visit was followed up by a visit by Jens Stoltenberg. And again, this is uh, because of the uh, NATO conference is coming uh, at the end of the month uh, in Spain. Uh, but th my point here is that uh, th th it is absolutely cheeky uh, of anybody uh, in the West to allege that Russia is driving magnet, uh, uh, migrants into Europe. Uh, this is a uh, the migrant situation is one that's been running for a very long time. And I don't think it was Russia that was uh, standing there with a whip encouraging people to come. Well, I think we could look in the direction of the United Nations for um, uh, encouragement of mass migration with a political agenda. Well, I, that's one place you could look. You might also want to look at the British Council as well, of course, um, and so on. But uh, anyway, let's move back to Ursula then. And she started then talking about food. Um, so I wonder what she said about that. Finally, the third topic uh, was on food security. 20 million tons of wheat are stuck in Ukraine and they have to get out. And therefore, we have created and we're working hard on the, the solidarity lanes. The second point that is important that we now give relief to the vulnerable populations and the possibility to afford the food. 
For that, we have pledged two and a half billion euros. The third element in that is that we step up our own food production. We expect a record export of cereals of 40 million tons in 22 and 23. Okay, so the EU is talking about uh, increasing food production. Well, what's going on in the UK with respect to food production? Well, let's look at this. This is uh, uh, Stockholm 50 plus, uh, Stockholm plus 50. Sorry, this event is taking place uh, tomorrow uh, and Friday. Uh, and uh, well, in, in the run up to that, uh, the UK is hosting uh, an event. And it's all about driving action to drive the recovery of the global economy and bolster food security. Now, how are they going to do that? Do you think is it about growing stuff? Uh, well, no, because what they say is it's by protecting and restoring nature. So in other words, removing farmland out of farming use and rewilding it effectively. And we'll just reinforce the point once again that, that uh, this is the policy of the British government. Uh, and as we reported last week, uh, some estimates suggest that uh, the UK will lose 1 million tonnes of wheat from its harvest this year as a result of uh, the government bungs to farmers in order to rewild their farmland. Uh, but it doesn't end there because, uh, of course, we're going to improve our food production with new genetic technologies. Here's Joe Churchill, uh, the Minister for Agri-Innovation and Climate Adaption, uh, speaking earlier this month. But this particular agenda has had a, a, another boost recently because uh, they're putting the UK government is putting legislation in place to cut red tape, as they describe it, and support the development of innovative tech to grow more resistant, more nutritious and more productive crops. Uh, that was uh, introduced in Parliament last week. So that the, it's the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Bill, uh, and it's going to remove unnecessary barriers to research in gene editing technology. And as we mentioned the last time we talked about this, we don't have to worry about it because it's not about uh, bringing in uh, genes from other uh, animals and other species, uh, as you would with uh, genetic modification. This is just about uh, speeding up the uh, the uh, specialization that humans have done for decades, generations, millennia, they claim. Trust us. Trust us. Uh, and just, uh, just to end this little segment, I'll just mention the ONS statistics from Friday, I think it was, uh, for April. Uh, and they were looking briefly at the uh, the cost of the lowest priced foods in the UK and how they've been doing. Uh, over the last year in terms of inflation and finding that some products, for example, the lowest priced pasta on the markets are in, have increased by 50% in that time. So food security uh, at the heart of what the uh, EU is doing, but they claim that they're going to start uh, producing more food. But in the meantime, in this country, we are uh, reducing our food productive, productive capability. But in the meantime, we've got to make sure that we uh, maybe send some ships into the Black Sea to try and break this blockade of uh, of Ukraine. Unlikely, I feel. Yes. Unlikely. Yes. And, and I just wanted to, to end uh, this section of Ursula's speech came from earlier uh, in the uh, in the program. But just have a listen to this, because uh, she, again, has taken a lead from the UK in what she's proposed here. Other elements in uh, the package are also important. It's the de-swifting of the spare bank and the suspension of broadcasting in the European Union of three further Russian state outlets. So uh, stop the money flows and uh, stop the information flows. Well, increase the censorship I yes. think is a better way of looking at it. Mike. Yes. She's a very touchy-feely lady, isn't it? I noticed that if you were in the club, you were getting a little hug and a kiss from her, but there were a few people looking a little bit uh, off, but she didn't want to... Uh, 
grapple with them. Okay. Uh, well, I will just very briefly mention the, the uh, continuing exercises that are taking place, more NATO exercises. So here we've got uh, this last week, US-led drills in Poland, demonstrating commitment to NATO allies, ironclad. So this is exercise ironclad, and we, we had lots of uh, images from that. Uh, then we've got uh, NATO allies firing MLRS and HIMARS for the first time uh, in Estonia ever. Uh, and we've got uh, another 1,500 troops in action in Exercise Hedgehog uh, in Estonia. Uh, so that's uh, a fantastic name for a uh, NATO exercise there. <laughs> no, I, I, a bunch of, uh, I don't know what to say joke. on this anymore. And we remember it that uh, uh, I think it's uh, Finland, the army, the British army had got 14 tanks in the uh, exercise, which was clearly going to cause the Russians a lot of uh, sleepless nights. Uh, this is something that uh, I think we should uh, shine a little bit of a spotlight on because there's virtually nothing in the UK uh, media and press about it. But uh, this is a story picked up um, in Bulgaria and Lithuania. Uh, this is the uh, Bulgarian report here, Daily News. Boris Johnson plotting a secret plan for an alternative EU, EU union. And uh, the thing which we notice is he seems to have gotten to tell the British public anything about this. Uh, so if we get into it, um, it said he presented his idea to the UK Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, for the first time during a visit to Kiev on April the 9th. This means that Johnson has been devising his secret plan for more than a month. Uh, the British initiative relies uh, on states that defend their national sovereignty, have liberal economic views and oppose Moscow's policy. The publication states that the leadership in Kiev did not uh, did not take a stand on the idea and neither accepted nor rejected it. Boris Johnson claimed responsibility for Partygate. So a little bit of an interesting article because it flips between a little bit of uh, information on Boris Johnson, uh, but uh, it's focusing in on his plan. And if we just blow the key bit up on screen so that we can see it, uh, this new European community is expected to be the United Kingdom, which will also include Ukraine, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and at a later stage, possibly Turkey. This is remarkable because it's being reported clearly uh, from a number of sources, but nothing in the UK. So was this a secret plan? Everybody can know, but not the British public. If any of our audience, uh, viewers, listeners, know anything about this, particularly if you're based in Eastern Europe, we would love to have more details to find out why this is not being reported in the UK. Uh, this is Lithuania here reporting. Johnson proposes alternative union with Ukraine, may include Baltic states. Uh, and again, it, it gives you the countries here. So uh, we just asked the question, were Westminster, was the British public told it would appear not? So what is Boris Johnson planning? What was he planning? What is he planning? And why are the public not being told about it? Okay, let's uh, just move on to China here and let's put HMS Timor on screen. Uh, this is not a very large vessel, it has to be said, member of the Royal Navy, Navy fleet, of course, uh, but it is in Darwin in Australia because um, this is part of the new permanent Royal Navy deployment in the uh, South, South Pacific and, and in Australia in particular. Um, so they're gonna have an initial five-year deployment. 
HMS Timor and its sister ship HMS Spey are going to work with allies and partners across the region to plan to visit countries from Australia to Japan, from Fiji to Singapore. This is an extension of soft power. Once again, Brian, an effort to encourage uh, these countries into this conflict. Well, this is a patrol uh, vessel, uh, Mike. So what, what's it actually doing? It's an interesting question. Um, while you were talking, into my mind came the fact that, of course, the U.S. are putting been putting the U.S. Coast Guard into these overseas deployments as well. So it seems that we're not able to put a proper warship on the job. This is a very small warship. Um, U.S. are putting in the Coast Guard. Is this part of the globalization policy? Yes. Well, in January, Timar was in this East China Sea to conduct monitoring and surveillance against illicit maritime activities, apparently. Um, but, you know, uh, anyway, it's... it's uh, it's clearly designed to, to encourage more participation from those kinds of countries. And as we've already mentioned, Japan and South Korea already being encouraged to join NATO or certainly begin that process. And it's going to be on station for five years, Yes, I, I think. Yeah, so let's move on to the uh, Xinjiang situation. And uh, here we have, uh, once again, uh, the uh, United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle uh, Bachelet, uh, in China. This was last week. Uh, and she made a statement following that visit uh, where she said, uh, to those that have sent me appeals asking me to raise issues or cases with the authorities, I've heard you. Uh, she said, I will continue to follow up on such issues and instances of concern on a sustained basis. But she also was very positive about uh, the fact that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, China had been cooperative and so on. And that uh, resulted in maybe what you would expect from the Western media. So let's look at what the Times said. Anger as UN Commissioner parrots China's line on Uyghur camps during Xinjiang trip. Uh, and here's uh, the Washington Post, how the UN became a tool of China's genocide denial propaganda. Uh, the Foreign Office then made a statement and uh, they said it's clear that the Chinese authorities did not provide the full unfettered access to Xinjiang for the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights that we and our international partners have long called for. China's failure to grant such access only serves to highlight their determination to hide the truth. Uh, we will continue to act with our international partners to increase the pressure on China to immediately cease its appalling human rights violations in Xinjiang uh, and release those unjustly detained. We look forward to the High Commissioner's long-awaited report on the situation in Xinjiang. Uh, and Vanessa, uh, just come to you. Uh, it's, the first thing that struck me was that there was absolutely nothing in anything that Michelle Bachelet said, which uh, suggested that she was in any way restricted in where she went or what she saw. You're, you're muted. You're muted. Uh, as I mentioned at the end of last week's program, anyone that wants to find out about Xinjiang, there's hundreds of tourism packages so they can go for themselves to Xinjiang and, and, and at least be on the ground there which is more than most of the researchers producing the reports uh, demonizing China have done over the years. Now, um, what I want to do today, because after last week's report uh, in onto the uh, Victims of Communism organization, which is effectively the organization from which the majority of the propaganda against China emanates, there are there is an entire sort of billionaire complex running this propaganda against China, but I want to focus in today on uh, VOC and its connections not only to the CIA, 
um, most of the organizations affiliated to it and the analysts that are working for it are funded uh, directly or indirectly by NED, a CIA uh, outreach agency. Right, sorry, sorry, Vanessa, just give us the full name for NED. That's the National Endowment for Democracy. National Endowment uh, for Democracy, yes. Sorry, I was just about to. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I, I had a deeper dig into VOC because this was really starting to, to bother me that effectively um, the entire media consortium that is running this campaign against China, particularly on the Uyghurs, is receiving its information exclusively from organizations that are funded by the U.S. State Department, the CIA, or uh, the military-industrial complex in America. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It doesn't come from within China. It doesn't come from within Xinjiang. In fact, the information from within Xinjiang, from the Uyghur community, is pushing back against this Western-generated propaganda. But of course, that's never mentioned. Now, just again, what I want to run over again is um, the fact that this foundation was authorized in 1993 by unanimous act of Congress signed as public law by Bill Clinton. Um, the, uh, the, the statue dedicated to the victims of communism was inaugurated in 2007 by President George W. Bush. So that gives you some indication immediately of the importance of this organization to US foreign policy bipartisan. But let's have a look at the founders of this organization. <laughs> this is when it starts to get really, really shady and um, very revealing. So we have Dr. Lee Edwards, Lev Dobriansky, and Zbigniew Brzezinski. So let's have a quick look, first of all, at Lev Dobriansky. And this is where I think people are gonna kind of go a little bit sharp intake of breath. So if you read about Dobriansky anywhere, I, I would recommend going to somewhere like Wikispooks, which is where I took this information, but I've checked it all through uh, various uh, sources. So initially, through his powerful connections in Congress, the Republican National Committee, the military industrial complex, as I said, this organization has revolving doors with uh, US uh, state and US intelligence and uh, the Pentagon. The military industrial complex, the Ukrainian diaspora, very important, and far right anti communist networks at home and abroad. Dobriansky played a pivotal role in the forging of warm friendship between the Nazi collaborators and the Ukrainian exile organization, the OUNB, which people will now know as uh, the Azov uh, and the Banderite uh, loyal battalions fighting uh, in Ukraine, backed by NATO member states and armed by NATO member states, and fervent anti-communists in the United States. He was on the US board of the infamous World Anti-Communist League in the 1970s. So this is a hardcore Nazi sympathizer, Banderite sympathizer, backed by the US State Department. But he also worked for the forerunner of the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services. He was educated and worked at Georgetown University a suspected CIA recruitment uh, university. Among his students was Katerina Yushchenko, the, the future first lady of Ukraine, rumored to be a CIA plant <laughs> by a number of independent analysts. And he has served as a consultant with the US Department of State, 
the International Communication Agency and the United, United States House of Representatives. Um, he was also uh, appointed as in an unspecified official capacity in Chile from 1975 to 76. So, as I say, everyone can go to Wikispooks, but they can also double check uh, this background anywhere on the web and they will find it confirmed. So let's go on to Brzezinski. Um, the text seems to be missing. No, it'll, um, it'll, be, but, it'll be there, um, don't worry, just keep, keep oh, reading. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Of course, Brzezinski should be known to everyone for his, um, his architecture of the war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan um, and his famous admission that the U.S. gave aid to the Mujahideen pre the 1979 Soviet intervention, which, of course, went against uh, all the propaganda from uh, U.S. aligned media at that time. The following quote is from, it's, it's an adapt, adaptation of his famous book that he wrote in 1997 called The Grand Chessboard, which of course advocated uh, the uh, blockade of Russia, the uh, balkanization of Russia, and effectively the reduction of Russia as a threat to US supremacy. So I'll just read this quote. Eurasia is the world's axial supercontinent, a power that, so of course this includes China and Russia. A power that dominated Eurasia would exercise decisive influence over two of the world's three most economically productive regions, Western Europe and East Asia. A glance at the map also suggests that a country dominant in Eurasia would almost automatically control the Middle East, which of course was anathema to American foreign policy from, for example, Syria's independence in 1946 from French mandate. And Africa, another area where the US is, uh, I mean, literally apoplectic with rage that China and Russia are making inroads in a very different fashion to uh, the neoconservatives in the United States, the EU and UK. With Eurasia now serving as the decisive geopolitical chessboard, it, is no long, it no longer suffices to fashion one policy for Europe and another for Asia. What happens with the distribution of power on the Eurasian landmass will be of decisive importance to America's global primacy. So this gives you, the first two founders I've talked about, give you a, a very clear indication of what this organization is about. Then let's look at um, Dr. Edward, Lee Edwards, sorry, I beg your pardon. Um, now, uh, Lee Edwards is co-founder and chairman emeritus of the victims, the VOC, he is a distinguished fellow in conservative uh, thought at the B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation um, and an adjunct professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. Now, interesting to bring in here the Catholic connection, because, of course, Western Ukraine is predominantly uh, not only Nazi, ultranationalist, it's Catholic, and therefore it is uh, extremely racist uh, towards the... Russian speakers, but also towards the Russian Orthodox religion. Um, now, I want to come back to the Heritage Foundation very quickly. Let's have a look at this organization. Again, this is an organization that has uh, as board members, analysts, and contributors, Nazi sympathizers again. The Heritage Foundation supported the war in Iraq. It also supported, or members of the Heritage Foundation supported uh, the torture techniques at uh, Guantanamo um, and supported the, uh, the, 
the awful CIA um, black sites globally, that we know are, are responsible for some of the most heinous crimes against, um, not even against criminals, just against humanity. But so this gives you an indication of what the VOC is representing. And it's important to understand um, this Nazi uh, proliferation in these organizations because it exists in pretty much all the organizations that, that are demonizing, criminalizing China. Um, I would recommend to everyone reading a couple of books. First of all, it's recently been published called Nazi Billionaires, The Dark History of Germany's, Germany's Wealthiest Dynasties. It goes into great detail about how uh, Nazis that were enabled to leave uh, both Germany and Ukraine at the end of the Second World War have been absorbed into um, the corporate uh, finance capitalist um, consortiums in America, but also in Europe. And also Russ Bellant, uh, Old Nazis, the New Right, and the Republican Party, which talks about, the again, the proliferation of Nazi influence, particularly in the Republican Party in the United States. But then if we move on, one of the um, main producers of the propaganda against China, particularly regarding the Uyghurs, is this guy, Adrian Zentz, of German origin, interestingly, who believes he has a mission from God to defeat communism. Now, the terrorists in Syria also believe they have a mission from God to, to, to murder all infidels, all non-believers. The Nazis in Ukraine believe they have a mission, if not from God, but certainly from their own ideology, to destroy the Untermenschen, the Russian speakers, those that don't comply with their extremist ideology. So this man, man believing he has a mission from God to bring about the end of communism does not imbue me with faith in his analysis, because that means he's being led by an ideology and not by fact. Um, also, NED funded, so again, uh, indirectly CIA funded, close relations with the US State Department. Um, <clears throat> sorry, just let me check if I have everything. He um, also is a contributor and an analyst for this organization, the Jamestown Foundation. Now, the Jamestown Foundation, again, I recommend everybody go to their website, look at their board members, but just to give you an indication who is on their board and who is having influence both over Zent and over uh, the information being produced about the Uyghurs. Um, first of all, we have uh, General Breedlove, um, who, of course, was NATO, former NATO commander. In the Ukraine from 2014 onwards, he has been calling for uh, military intervention, for greater weaponization of uh, the, effectively, the ultranationalists and Nazi brigades there um, to, to overcome Russia. But you also have Michael Hayden, who was the former director of the CIA. He oversaw the drone strikes in Pakistan and commanded the NSA during the surveillance controversy. Um, and he was a proponent of using all methods of torture in Guantanamo Bay. So these people are extremely high-level operatives, okay, connected to U.S. State Department, Pentagon, and CIA. And these are the ones influencing policy on China and producing 
the reports that are then picked up by the consortium of media led by the BBC to then criminalize China. Now, I have not been on the ground in Xinjiang, but neither has Adrian Zent. He's been there once on holiday in, I think it was 2007. So I don't believe that I am any less qualified to comment on this than he is. He is, uh, he is effectively the Bellingcat of, of Xinjiang, okay? His reports are based entirely on open source. So he's picking stuff up from social media, um, from uh, pet uh, citizen journalists, activists, just as the BBC, for example, did inside Syria, as was revealed by the UK Foreign Office document leaks, um, the extent that the UK Foreign Office was involved through the BBC in influencing opinion referenced the terrorist armed groups inside Syria. Now we're seeing the same operation again with, and with Adrian Zentz as, as the head of this operation effectively feeding information to media consortium and cartel to demonize China. So I would only ask one question. If you are even remotely tempted to believe in this information, I suggest you go to someone like Brian Berletic, the new Atlas, Daniel Dumbrell, who also has a YouTube channel and is on Twitter, both of whom have spent, well, Dumbrell has spent uh, extensive time in Xinjiang and in China, lives in China, and has an entirely different perspective on the entire situation to the BBC and to Adrian Zentz. Adrian Zentz is, is really, I mean, he is Bellingcat. Yeah, or, or a parallel of, <laughs> parallel. yes. Yeah. Okay, well, look, uh, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Any thoughts? Well, uh, I mean, these people are doing despicable things and they're, they're not only doing the dirty deeds, they're then controlling the media and they are putting out propaganda to cover their tracks. This is something that I think is beholden on all free media to be lifting the stones and exposing exactly what's going on and who the, who the people are. So I, I'm going to say well done to Vanessa for that, because unless we start to question these organizations, we're never going to get at the truth. And as we'll show in just a minute, the BBC just keeps using these types of organizations to put out a political opinion without ever telling their audience the real background to them. Right. Uh, your final thought? Yeah, just very quickly, because I had a conversation with Alex Thompson about this entire subject um, yesterday. And he made a very important point that Germany in the 1920s weaponized uh, the, the Turkestanis, the, which are effectively the Uyghurs, against Britain uh, in alliance with the Ottoman Empire. So we saw then the weaponization by Germany of exactly the same elements that are now being weaponized by effectively Nazi sympathizers in uh, China. But it's also, as Alex pointed out, it's the western tip of the eastern spear. So whereas before NATO member states have been weaponizing um, eastern terrorist elements, now they're bringing in the Nazi western elements to carry out their bidding. And their bidding, of course, as Brzezinski has made very clear in his grand chessboard, is uh, the, the end of Russia, basically. And China, of course, by, by default. Okay, thank you for that. Now, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and uh, your support is, would be very much appreciated there. Or you can pick something up from the UK column shop. Thank you very much to everybody that's been doing that over the last couple of days. Uh, please uh, also do share our material on the various platforms. Now, Vanessa, uh, let's move back to the BBC then. And, uh, well, a further attack on certain academics 
students accuse lecturer of sharing Russia war lies is the headline. I mean, you know, this is this is just disgusting work by um, Chloe Hadjamatu, who led the hate campaign um, against me particularly, but also against um, Piers Robinson, again, Tim Hayward, and uh, the entire working group on Syria media and propaganda, previously, of course, in Syria, on the Syria work and the OPCW work. But here, what they've actually done, the BBC, and I find this reprehensible, they have effectively exploited a genuine student, from what I can understand, and I spoke to Tim about this this morning. Um, they, they've taken her, as, as Tim said, legitimate concerns that he'd have been happy to discuss with her, and they've weaponized them. So they've actually put this student into the firing line because the, the majority of people on social media, on YouTube, on the, on the dreadful Ukraine cast, podcast on the BBC, which I don't recommend anyone listening to. Um, most of the comments are against. So they're attacking this student um, for, for, for what they perceive as an attack on, on, um, on discourse, on genuine discourse, academic discourse, which is what Tim and other professors like David Miller, uh, Mark Crispin Miller, have tried to do within uh, the academic institutions where they're working. And it's, it's, it is really, I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's criminal. The BBC has just become um, so full of hate speech and, and censorship and neo-McCarthyism. Um, it, it's not fit for purpose. It is nothing more than an extension of intelligence uh, and UK foreign office agencies. Okay, so let's uh, bring on EA Worldview then. And Scott Lucas uh, yeah. has decided to get in on the fight as well. Students criticize University of Edinburgh lecturer Hayward's quotes disinformation on Ukraine and Syria. And there we have Piers Robinson, your good self, and Tim Hayward uh, in what seems to be a, uh, well, copyright infringement uh, in the sense that that uh, image <laughs> has been lifted from one of the previous media on trial events. Um, and I'm quite sure that uh, Scott Lucas doesn't own the copyright on that. Um, so, uh, Scott Lucas, of course, uh, has been a long time attacker on all three of you over the last number of years. Yeah, well, yeah Scott Lucas, and, and there's an article on the UK Column website that I wrote a few years ago, uh, reference uh, Scott Lucas's attachment or, or affiliation with the Turan Centre, which was packed full um, of extremist armed group uh, affiliates, leaders and members including uh, the former spokesperson for Jaish al-Islam, one of the most savage uh, armed groups inside Syria, who was later arrested in France for um, atrocities committed in Syria, both against civilians and journalists. And this is who uh, Scott Lucas has aligned himself with and who he has promoted inside Syria, of course, as part of the entire media cartel that was established by the UK Foreign Office to do just that, to promote and whitewash um, the terrorist armed groups. And here he is again on Ukraine attacking the same people who are doing the same job of trying to prize open uh, the lies on Ukraine and to provide the truth, or at least to provide um, a sensible discourse and, and discussion on the subject. Okay, well, look, we just want to take this opportunity to put uh, a new initiative on screen. This is Propaganda in Focus. Mm -hmm. Piers Robinson is, is one of the people behind this. Uh, Mark Crispin Miller, Miller as well. What we don't know is killing us. The urgency of propaganda study under COVID is uh, 
is one article on there that people might want to go and have a look at. Uh, but uh, this remains a really important area that, that needs much more exposure. So it's good to see uh, initiatives like this uh, turn up. Uh, Vanessa. Yeah, perfect. It's, it's an excellent new initiative and I thoroughly recommend everybody read the articles on there, especially Mark Crispin Miller's um, COVID article. Yeah, thank you. Okay, Vanessa, thank you for that. Well, I, I have covered this um, in an ex, in a UK column extra time, but I think it's worthy of bringing it back on screen. It's reinforcing really what um, Vanessa's been talking about is how the BBC carries out its manipulation. This was the article, Donbass, why Russia is trying to capture Eastern Ukraine. And uh, I was looking at part of the text to see what they, they had to say. And uh, what do we discover? Um, that's uh, should bring it in. There we are. There's the blue arrow. Russian studies analyst Michael Kaufman. So, as far as the reader's concerned, this is just somebody who's been involved in Russian studies. But of course, uh, this is not quite the case. This is a very specialist man. So, the BBC being disingenuous, it's misleading people by omission of the facts around who they're talking about. Uh, if we start to have a look at this gentleman, we very quickly see that he's a director of Russian studies at CNA. We'll come on to them in a minute. Very experienced pe person, Russian military capabilities, operations and strategy. And uh, if you want to know what CNA is, it's uh, this. The Centre for Naval Analyses is the oldest research and analysis organisation in the United States. That's a double FRDC which means that it's federally funded. So this man cannot be independent in any sense. Uh, he is working for a key uh, Russian intelligent, uh, sorry, American intelligence and uh, analysis center. And uh, he is extremely unlikely to be saying anything that the American government doesn't want to hear. Uh, so this is a publication that I was able to source pretty quickly, Russian military autonomy in Ukraine conflict. And if we have a look at it, it's got a signature from Mr. Kaufman at the end. It's dated February 2022. So he is working essentially for the, uh, uh, the American government at the same stage as the BBC is putting him forward as if he is an independent researcher. But he's doing very precise work. This is a whole tranche on... Uh, reconnaissance vehicles, UAVs and UGVs that the Russians might use. So highly specialized. And again, to reinforce what Vanessa is saying, look at the people. Um, we've got a mixture of very high profile ex-military across all three American services, plus other researchers that you say, well, where do they fit in? It's not quite uh, sure, but if we come to one man, this is the board chair, Roderick K. von Lipsy. And uh, if we have a look at his background, and people can check all this themselves, uh, we've got a, an experienced ex former US Marine Corps man, but also the National Security Council, uh, the NSC, the National Security Council, the Council on Foreign Relations, Vice President Goldman Sachs, and founder of UBS Financial Services. So an interesting mix of deep state military and money, which doesn't leave me feeling too uh, comfortable, Mike. Yes. OK, let's quickly come back to the UK and to Tony Blair. And of course, there's been a campaign, a, a, a petition on change.org uh, to try and get uh, Tony Blair's knighthood removed. 
and they have now decided to hold a rally because uh, on June the 13th, he will be awarded uh, what they describe as one of the nation's highest honours by Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, and they say on Monday the 13th of June, a gathering of like-minded people is to be held in Windsor where Tony Blair and the world's press can witness precisely what the people of the country think about this award, where people can stand up and be seen by, by the world's press, voicing their feelings and sending our message that we do not consent to this ill-deserved award. Now, if you want to find out more about it, you can get it from the petition page or from uh, Stop the War Coalition. And uh, the reason I put the Stop the War Coalition graphic on screen, Vanessa, is because, of course, many people would argue that they are uh, you know, left wing, that there are uh, too much, uh, too many Muslim Brotherhood involved in Stop the War Coalition. And of course, Stop the War Coalition, uh, however, did hold the, uh, the anti-Iraq uh, rally in 2003 that saw well over a million people attending that. But my point here is this is really one of those areas where there needs to be uh, cross uh, political support and uh, people shouldn't be put off going just because they may perceive it as being uh, organized by uh, people on the left of politics? Um, no, I mean, Stop the War Coalition. I mean, uh, Sami Ramadani, as far as I know, is still on the board of, I, I could be wrong, because I haven't spoken to him for a little while. Um, yeah, you know, during the Syria, but during this, the war against Syria, many of these leftists, particularly pro-Palestinian organizations, were infiltrated and taken over by those um, propagating the propaganda against Syria. Um, I guess one can say that, that certain members will still maybe be uh, online with, with the general concept of stopping war. And on that, from that perspective, we should support them where we agree with them. I mean, I guess that's also part of the, the pragmatist, the pragmatic approach to what we're doing is that we have to take what we can get from areas that we might not necessarily agree with. But if they're online and on board with with certain um, campaigns, then we should be united on those, yes. I guess. Well, I, I would say if you can get out and make your voice heard, you should do uh, speaking out that counts as long as everything is done in a reasonable and peaceful way. Yes. OK, well, let's uh, move over to uh, more uh, health related things. And Debbie, uh, well, I just want to kick off with this one. This uh, was announced uh, before the weekend, but uh, we kept it for today. Uh, this was a landmark, landmark clinical trials deal agreed at the World Health Assembly by the UK. Uh, and what are they saying? Millions of people across the world will be better protected from future pandemics thanks to a landmark resolution brought by the UK and Argentina at the World Health Assembly. Uh, that was on Friday. Uh, by encouraging more specific funding, a resolution will help developing countries increase their capa uh, capacity to run their own clinical trials. Help, helping them to test new drugs, vaccines, and other health interventions, which will benefit their populations while working across countries to respond to future pandemics more rapidly. And this is all part of the 100 Days uh, initiative, of course. So let's look at uh, what it covers. Early diagnostics, genomics, clinical trials, regulatory innovation, implementation of innovation, manufacturing processes, sustainability in the life sciences sector, and antimicrobial resistance. and uh, Debbie, uh, if I could, uh, interested in your thoughts on this, but but what struck me about it was that this is about the UK attempting to develop new markets in emerging countries uh, and uh, effectively have that funded internationally, probably. But but the point is uh, uh, where there's a perception of of the need, and therefore they can uh, uh, well they can make more profit. Yeah, 
absolutely and good afternoon everyone and of course this isn't in the uh, best interest of us at all these clinical trials and they are going to be rushed through the 100 day mission everything's going to be rushed through no safety trials um here we go although i have to say very quickly um the world health assembly i'd like to say thank you to the african nations uh, who stood up against the international health regulations which was unexpected so some good things came out of the WHA as well as that. But yes, clinical trials, they're, what can I say, 100 days. We're going from 10-year clinical trials to 100 days. Very dangerous. Okay, thank, thank you for that, Debbie. Well, perhaps we should add straight away that, of course, many medical and other professionals have been speaking out worldwide uh, about their concerns to do with everything from the pandemic to uh, COVID-19 vaccinations and lockdown. And uh, one of the uh, key groups, of course, has been uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics, and the UK column has helped them get their message out on several occasions. Um, Reiner Formick doing a very good job from a, a base in Germany. Um, but uh, a little while ago, we asked if there were members of the UK column community that were bilingual in French and English. And uh, we did get a really extraordinary a positive response to that. There are many more of you than we expected. And the reason was that in the background, we were working to try and help French professionals, uh, both medically qualified people, but also those qualified at law to get their message out because we understood that it was very difficult for people in France to speak out and particularly to get a message out in French, in the French language. So we were doing some work over a number of weeks in order to put out um, uh, an equivalent, I'll say, of the uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics, but with French professionals. Uh, it was recorded in French with the help of uh, Alex Thompson. And uh, we think we've got something very special. I'm just gonna put a little advert up on screen to show you uh, faces, but they include uh, Professor Perron, who we've spoken to before, very important man in uh, his original position for matters to do with vaccinations in France. But uh, this will be released on the UK Column website this evening. And our, our uh, objective is to get this out in French. So if you are a French speaker, will you please help us to promulgate this? Uh, we want to get the message out from these uh, professionals, but also to draw uh, people in um, who hopefully we'll be speaking French and English back into the into the UK column. Uh, Alex has said that this will be available on the UK column website this evening. And we're going to be in touch with those very generous bilingual French English speakers who offered to help uh, because we will have more work to do on this particular video, but unique uh, event really might. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, there is a translation exercise going on and there will be subtitles in English. Uh, in we wanted to get it out uh, before in, that work was complete. So, so it's going out in French initially, but then it'll be subtitled subsequently. Yes. So help us to do that because these people have put a lot of effort in trying to get their message out. Well, Debbie, uh, let's uh, carry on with matters to do with vaccination. You've pointed out in a couple of slides here We've got some interesting dialogue going on about uh, unvaccinated people posing a threat to those inoculated against COVID-19. Uh, Weon's reporting on this one, and I'll bring the second one up on screen. C. Madge, you can explain the background to this. 
Um, using simple mathematical modeling, we've shown that although risk associated with avoiding vaccination during a virulent pandemic accrues chiefly to those who are unvaccinated, the choice of some individuals to refuse vaccination is likely to affect the health and safety of vaccinated people in a manner disproportionate to the fraction of unvaccinated people in the population. How would you like to reply to that? <laughs> Where do I start? Well, very quickly, really. I mean, I think this paper clearly shows propaganda of trying to create uh, an apartheid between vaccinated people and unvaccinated people. And we can talk about shedding another time. But my question to um, that study paper um, is, well, how do healthy people pose a threat to people that have been vaccinated? How does that how does that work? You know, people that have been vaccinated are meant to be, and of course we know they're not protected against transmission or catching it, catching something themselves. Um, but how does a healthy person pose a threat to somebody that's had one, two, three, possibly four vaccines? Yeah. So, and it the, the other question, Debbie, is, well, the point to be made there is that they were basing that uh, conclusion on some basic mathematical modelling. Well, we all know where basic mathematical modelling took uh, Neil Ferguson, for example, and therefore the entire country. Oh, Neil, Neil what, Professor Pantsdown, I think, is his um, nickname. Epidemiologists and an epidemiologist such as Neil Ferguson, who we know made huge mistakes and was responsible for all of those cows being killed. Um, you know, these people, in my opinion, should be locked up in the Tower of London because clearly their mathemat mathematical modelling is wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're referring to the foot and mouth uh, disaster. Sorry. Yes. Yes. Uh, and, and of course, it was his modelling which, uh, which created this slaughtered on suspicion policy as well. Okay, well, we'd, we'll give our viewers and listeners a reminder that's an excellent article on uh, UK Column, if we just pop that up on screen. Uh, so this is it, Strengthening Global System. No, no, that's, that's, uh, that's yeah, that's, that's not the title of the article. That's the, uh, the article was entitled, uh, well, I can't remember it off the top of my head, it was talking about vaccines. Oh, right, this is, yeah. okay, sorry, my apologies, that's the paper to which it refers, of yes. course, yeah. But I'll, I'll just uh, put the tag in here. Look to the UK column for an article by Dr. Mike Williams, yeah. So this is the, uh, the covering image. Apologies for that. We grabbed that one quite quickly, but we just wanted to draw people's attention to it. Now, Debbie, you've got a number of um, very interesting slides here. I'll try and do justice to them. So you stop me if I've gone too far subject-wise, but let's bring in the first little tranche of them. We've got the independent and the headline is NHS 111 overloaded with callers asking if rash is monkeypox. And when I had a look at this article, I was absolutely fascinated by what it was saying, but also when I got down to the end, where it's saying it could be difficult for you to communicate with the NHS. Uh, so the little red tag bottom right on screen, there are other potential routes of trying to get yourself into the system, maybe calling NHS 111, but this has been overloaded with everyone calling who, who has had a rash. We're trying to point people towards sexual health clinics. And if I go on here, this one is Dr. Susan Hopkins, the UK 
HSA's chief medical advisor. She said, we're continuing to promptly identify further monkeypox cases in England through our extensive surveillance and contact tracing networks, our vigilant NHS services, and thanks to people coming forward with uh, symptoms. Uh, but she goes on to also say, well, visit your local sexual uh, health service. My immediate reaction to this is, I can imagine a lot of people feeling very, very uncomfortable going near a sexual health service because of the implications, and in some cases, who they're going to be sitting next to. Um, you've got a lot more experience on the NHS than I have, but there's something very strange going on here. There's something very strange going on, Brian, and I would I would ask everybody to, to read the article on UK Column because um, it's very interesting. But currently, if today, um, the UK has got 190 cases uh, reported. Well, I don't know where any of these people are that are infected with monkeypox. Um, where, where are they being held? Where are they quarantined? Uh, some of them must be feeling a lot better now. Maybe they'd like to be interviewed. Or is it because we are referring people now to sexually transmitted disease clinics and people are too embarrassed to talk about it? And, you know, when we look back at, at what they're saying now, they're taking it back to a festival that was held at the beginning of, of May in Gran Canaria, a pride festival. And there was another festival, um, a gay festival, I believe, gay pride festival in Antwerp. So they're tracking it back. So now they're linking it towards STD. And today, um, Dr. Hans Kluger, who's the European head of um, the WHO, said that Europe was the epicenter of the world of monkeypox. And uh, actually, WHO have upgraded their alert now to moderate. Um, apparently there's 606 confirmed global cases with an, another 130 suspected, I believe. But where are all these people? Where are they? I haven't seen any evidence of monkeypox people being, well, people that have suffered from monkeypox being interviewed or, you know, telling us about their experiences. So we've got the media reported. Perhaps we should put a caveat here in and say we're reporting on this because it's such an incredible subject that suddenly monkeypox has come out of nowhere. There are many people who are worried about it. It seems to us that uh, mainstream media, the papers, the BBC are ramping it up. So a lot of people fearful. Um, but what is this about what's going on? So we're trying to get to the bottom of it. And I, I, th I think we can say with confidence that the UK column team are not sitting here worried that we're going to get monkeypox. We're trying to find out what this agenda is about. Have a look at this uh, headline here that you picked up on. Uh, this is essentially new monkeypox guidance for health professionals. And what you've highlighted is that it's not just wearing PPE. We are, we're back to more or less full body suits and armour in order to stand up against the monkeypox. And uh, as we're going to see in just a moment, because I'll get you to comment on this, we're then, we've got what for me as a, as a non-medically trained person is amazingly complex dialogue going on as to what the monkeypox is and herpes and shingles. We'll come on to that. But first of all, why are they so frightened and we're going to need specialist breathing equipment and PPE for monkeypox? They're obviously expecting something uh, 
far far more is all I can say. But for, you know, if if somebody rings up one 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 and has got a rash and says is is suspected monkeypox, they're being asked with a notifiable disease because we've we've covered that in the previous news with a notifiable disease to walk themselves or get the bus or whatever to their nearest STD. But then if they go in through the door and they say they're suspecting they might have monkeypox, you're going to be met with people with respirators. You know, this is a, this is what I mean. This is a notifiable disease. And this is where they seem to be um, making an awful lot more. Uh, well, we'll come on and see for sure. But um, it's not all what it seems to be. OK. And uh, if we go on through that next segment that I was indicating, we, we've now got discussions going on with herpes and shingles and uh, MRA. Uh, let's bring this up on the screen. Uh, we've got a mixture of, of uh, press reports, but also scientific debate. Um, the baseline for it is monkeypox, but let's have a look at some of the things that are coming up. So we've got shingles and mRNA, COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, we've got this one, monkeypox is not the same as shingles despite COVID-19 vaccine related claims. Uh, Forbes here, health officials investigating two dozen suspected cases of monkeypox across Canada found that 95% of cases are shingles. So what, what are your thoughts on this? What, what is actually happening here and what is the message that people should take from these reports? Well, my thoughts on this, um, along with many scientists and many people are speaking up about this now, is um, what we seem to be seeing are serious adverse reactions caused by the vaccine that are resembling, well, they would like to have us think, resembling monkeypox. Herpes is something that is, can, be very, can be very similar. It can be confused. I mean, many people are getting confused between herpes zoster and herpes simplex, What's shingles, chickenpox, smallpox, monkeypox, cowpox? So there's a cascade of information coming in. But, you know, we see the fact checkers are very, very quick to say, no, 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 nothing to see here. It's definitely not shingles. And yet, as we'll see in a minute, if you look at the MHRA, we're seeing an awful lot of people that have been vaccinated that are coming up with rashes and are having flare-ups of shingles. Shingles is a latent condition and it would appear that the mRNA wakes up latent conditions and we've talked about latent conditions before but you know for, for all of these serious adverse reactions that we're seeing how many of them are shingles and herpes and not monkeypox at all and you can test for herpes um, you can test via a swab of an open sore a blood test or a PCR test, a PCR test is, I would sort of hesitate, but traditionally you can, you can, you can test for it. And uh, clearly we're seeing uh, um, something that's crossing over here and many adverse reactions that are being blamed on other conditions because of course it can't be the vaccine. Whereas clearly until the investigations are done, which they're not being done, but I'm still on the case of the MHRA, until we have a full investigation we will never know so this is a very worrying situation for a lot of people at the moment and many people are ringing their doctors and 999 because they've got rashes and they're panicking because they think they've got monkeypox 
So it's an ongoing, very fast moving story still. But I, I think what, what I would say very quickly is look ahead to the summer now and the festivals and all the music events that are going to be going on, because I've got just a hunch that they're going to be blamed for an exponential rise in the summer. And this is the kind of um, propaganda that will go on. And of course, it could lead to non-essential travel being banned. So the festival season is ahead. And I think people are going to be targeting the young and the children specifically. OK, well, Debbie, let's just bring in the um, UK Columns yellow card reports, because you've used this just to reinforce the point you're making for our viewers. Um, so if you go onto the UK Column website, you can find the yellow card uh, database, which if you start the search engine, you'll come up with this. So this is the latest uh, printout for vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, so it's uh, just under one and a half million and 2,148 fatalities. But as Debbie's emphasising, the MHRA has still done no um, quantitative risk analysis to actually pin down how many of those deaths are caused by the vaccines. Uh, but this was the second point here that um, we'd also started to pick up on the fact that there was a sudden increase in cases around herpes zoster. Uh, there's a little um, uh, question mark next to herpes zoster there in the middle of your screen. It's very small, but tell us the significance of that and that uh, data? Well, Mike very kindly put these little red question marks into certain things. When we started looking at the serious adverse reactions and, and when Mike and the team put the yellow card site up on the UK column, we started to notice that herpes was one of the, um, well, the numbers were going up literally by the week by a lot. And many people didn't understand that herpes, herpes zoster was shingles. And on the MHRA data, they, they'll write things like cerebrovascular accident. And most people might not know what that means, but it means stroke. Myocardial infarction is cardiac, um, is, is, is a heart attack. So Mike very kindly put some little red question marks on the things that we'd highlighted right back at the beginning when the vaccines were being rolled out. And clearly you'll see that herpes was one of them. And now look where we are now. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a rise of monkeypox, but a huge rise and a huge um, reporting of herpes and all, all different kinds of herpes, herpes simplex, gentle herpes. Um, and of course, we've got neonatal herpes. So this is a big subject and one that I think we need to keep a very special eye on. But festival season is coming up. So watch for more propaganda. Yeah, I'll just say, Debbie, that the little question marks, uh, if you hover your mouse over those, it gives a little bit of an explanation as to what those terms mean. And that's that's why we put them there. Yeah, excellent. OK, well, let's just switch across to another subject, because if we're sensing that uh, the media is being used and the NHS is being used to ramp up fear against the dreaded monkeypox, uh, we've got problems if you want to summon an ambulance to get somebody who's sick into hospital. And you picked up on quite a few reports over the, on this subject over the last few days. Let's have a look at some of those. Um, stage four cancer patients left stranded by ambulances after system was outsourced to private provider. The Telegraph ambulances will stop responding to 999 calls on August the 17th. Boss warns. 
more than 20 ambulances queue outside of Torbay A&E amid huge number of attendances. Uh, Plymouth Live 909 services sinking, how under pressure is England's ambulance service. Socialist worker major ambulance service will entirely collapse in August. Uh, doctors warn that patients are coming to harm as thousands face uh, record 12 hour A&E waits. And uh, we'll give you another one, patients forced to wait for 24 hours in ambulance, data shows. Uh, a solution apparently, we're gonna have more Masonic uh, ambulances, that's quite incredible. And um, what's this one here? Investigation launched into Northeast ambulance service following claims of cover-up. This is not looking good, Debbie. It's as if people are, are to be prevented from getting into hospital because you're simply not going to be able to get there. I know because that's, that's the aim, is that more patients will be treated at home, uh, less will need to go to hospital. But it's interesting that, you know, we are in June now. It's June the 1st. So the flu season's over winter's over and this historically is a time where the NHS pick up on their elected cases and they catch up. So where are all these emergency calls coming from? Why is everybody dialing 999? Where, you know, who are these emergencies? This is what we have to ask ourselves and our ambulance services in crisis and why are they having to park? You know, if you were to call an ambulance and, and I say to everybody, um, if you go onto YouTube, the NHS Improvement Board sat five days ago and at 12 minutes, Amanda Pritchard, CEO of NHS England, talks about the fact that if you were to ring an ambulance from home, it could take up to 12 hours for you to get that ambulance. Then when you've got into the ambulance, you could be waiting outside a hospital for up to 30 hours. And the reason is, is that they seem to be throwing money at ambulances. The government's just invested 36 million, but we're having a new fleet, a new fleet of carbon zero ambulances. But the problem isn't the ambulances. The problem is, is that we have a log jam in our hospitals because we have no social care. So we've got nowhere to discharge patients to now. Care homes, a lot of care homes have closed. We've lo lost a lot of staff. We can't get patients back home. And some of these crews are being held up for up to two days in shifts with one patient in the back of an ambulance. So, you know, we're looking at the ambulance service is going to disappear. We, we know that, you know, ambulances are going to go, everybody, and it's going to be, you're going to get treated at home. And this is why we're sending the old fleet of ambulances to Ukraine, quite frankly. But we have a huge NHS crisis at the moment that nobody seems terribly willing to talk about. And uh, Debbie, during, even during lock, sorry, sorry. Debbie, let, let me just come in there. Let's reinforce this because this is more research you did. This is gov.uk, search properties for sale. And what you've highlighted in red, I know it's small on screen for people, but it's the evidence is there, is we're seeing ambulance stations being sold off. So we're looking after the NHS, but in the, in the background, uh, properties are being sold off. We saw this with the MOD, Mike, and yeah. you had a, uh, you did a lot of work highlighting the fact that the government didn't even know the total value of the property that it was suddenly selling. Uh, here's the you, the uh, ambulances to Ukraine, and because we're on the stops for time, I'll just put the teaser in for this. 
that your research, if I've got this right, Debbie, is that when you follow it through, we're going to get rid of ambulances because, first of all, we've got to go to electronic vehicle, uh, sorry, electric vehicles. Uh, so we're going to get rid of the old stock to Ukraine. Uh, but climate emergency has suddenly become health emergency. Yeah, it always comes back to climate, doesn't it? Always. Um, yeah, what can I say? You know, ambulances, they're going to be a thing of the past, like GPs. And we've been warning about this for a very long time. And, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it uh, a bit more because there's a little bit more dark darkness going on around transport for people with mental health illnesses. So we need to keep an eye on this on this very, very carefully, because I suspect in the summer it's going to get worse and worse. And especially in tourist areas like Cornwall, where we have five million visitors, um, it's going to get absolutely rammed. I'm sure of it. OK. Thank you for that. Well, at the end of the day, it's up to the UK column and other uh, media outlets to get the facts out and for people to start challenging uh, their political representatives as to what's really happening in the NHS. I think we're out of time. I'm afraid so. We'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream with some extra. OK, thank you very much to our audience today for joining us wherever you are in the world. Do look out for the French doctors. And if you're a French speaker, please help us to promulgate that because these individuals have put their careers at risk in some cases for speaking out. And uh, the UK Column's been delighted to help uh, French uh, people in France to get that message out. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.